the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 231, and we are recording on May 12th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. To the thing you do every week. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to your routine. (laughs) I would tell you my brain is just full of Mario Kart because I discovered that there's a free iPhone version. Oh. So that's where I live now. How do you... Dear, is it just yeah it's actually pretty clever because i was like there's no way and like you can turn on this thing where if you like move your phone you steer but i didn't want that so the basic controls are like you tap the screen or hold for certain things in like Mm -hmm. certain directions it's pretty it actually works really well i am astonished Mm. i'm enjoying it thoroughly (laughs) i have been this is so weird y'all but i have been marathoning old seasons of The Biggest Loser, which is so dumb and weird. And like, I've never watched it before. So I have no, you know, I had no idea what I was in for. I don't even remember what made me start watching it. But like, I can't. It's just like all reality TV, right? Like, it's terribly problematic. And I can't stop. And this is just what I'm doing. That's (laughs) Jillian Michaels. Yeah. Yelling at people. Yes. Yes. Although she's only been she's not in the new season, Mm. like the, the newest one. And I've only seen a few episodes of, of the season with her in it. And she is very shouty. Yeah. Like, she's very shouty. It's her motivation style. They're all very shouty. Like, they they all seem to be. Except in the new. I think, you know, I do know that the show went off the air for a couple of years because it was the worst. And there was a new season that came out in January. And it is completely different. Like, the trainers are, are nice, mm. which seems to be a good improvement. They don't talk about food at all. Interesting. Through the whole thing, which also, yes, stop. I mean, the whole premise is problematic, but like, well, I don't know. I, uh, here I am watching. I feel like it would also be problematic if I sat down and watched The Bachelor because that feels real sexist to me. So I don't know. Well, I'm, just, I'm just letting terrible reality TV happen to me. I was just going to say, we've been working our way through old seasons of Survivor. Oh. And it's, it's I, let me tell you, it's very watchable. <laughs> is it? So Richard is on The Biggest Loser. Wait, I don't know who Richard is. The the fir- the guy who won the first season oh. who like, got in all that trouble with the tax law stuff. Right. I haven't seen that season. He ends up on the... Bi- I was like, this is weird. This is like meta reality TV. And like I, then I, I watched all of the Tiger King, including the new episode. Like, I'm just doing terrible reality things right now. Yeah. It's just- I mean, this is where our brains are at. 100%. <laughs> like, I just want to be titillated in ways that I don't have to analyze. <laughs> so, oh, Lord. I'll go back to caring and thinking critically in 2021. <laughs> anyway... Now that we've lost half our audience, sorry, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. So how the show normally works is we do not talk about reality TV. Um, we do personalized reading recommendations, as I mentioned. Uh, so if you need a reading recommendation for yourself or your book club or a gift or whatever, you can email those to us at getbooktobookwrite.com, or you can drop them in the form uh, in the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, put it in the subject line or in big letters in the first line if you're using the form so that we can get to it on time. We might email you your uh, your answer if we're not going to get to it on time, which is why we ask for your email address. Okay, we do have two pieces of feedback for old episodes. The first one is from Suzanne, who says, For Jenny, who was looking for a fun romance, Evie Drake starts over by Linda Holmes as her wreck. A young widow rents her apartment to a friend of a friend, a washed-up baseball player, and realistic romance ensues eventually. Um, And Christy says, two recommendations for last week's book seekers for a seriously funny and long read. I don't think I've ever read anything funnier than Lucy Sullivan is Getting Married by Marion Keys. Basically travels through Irish dating disasters with snarky roommates. And for the person looking for books on cancer, Kate Bowler's book Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved is very good. The author was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer when she was still in her 30s. She's a divinity professor at Duke and is really wonderful take on large existential questions. I have read that. Um. And it's great. This is Amanda, not Christy. I have read Kate Bowler's book. It's really, really great. Um, And she is still alive and does a lot of promotional like talks and things out there on the internet. She's out there doing the thing with her divinity degree. Okay, so Jen's going to read our first question and away we will go. All right. First question is from Erin, who says, one of the first get book recs that I bought, read, and loved was Little and Lion by Brandy Colbert. I could relate so much to it. I have cerebral palsy, and my twin has always seen a need to be maternal toward me, leaving me longing for a true sister relationship rather than feeling like I have multiple mothers and no sisters. The book really helped me to understand that I'm not alone in having a maternalistic sibling, but it also gave me glimpses into a true sibling relationship. Our birthday is in mid-June, and I'd love to gift my sister 
sister books like Little and Lion, but also books in which the sibling with a disability is a hero or heroine, as opposed to the non-disabled ones, just as a way to start some dialogue between us. All right, so before we dive into those, let us do our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Amanda, what do you have? I picked A Curse So Dark and Lonely by Bridget Kemmerer, which was recommended to me by a contributor, Amanda Deal, um, who also does content for Smart Bitches Trashy Books. So if you like romance, go check that out. And A Curse So Dark and Lonely is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast in like a, in a, a retelling in a fantasy way as if the original isn't also a fantasy. Hello. <laughs> but, you know, like a modern kind of style YA fantasy. Um, so the two main characters are Prince Ren, who is, you know, the beast. He's the heir of the country of Emberfall. And he has been cursed by an enchantress to repeat the fall, like the season, autumn of his 18th birthday every year until he can find, you know, a woman to love him and all of that kind of thing. And he has tried. <laughs> like uh, He has people in his court bringing him girls basically every year to try and break this curse because when he turns into the beast, he becomes very destructive. He's destroyed his family. He's destroyed his castle. And so he's trying to not just save himself, but to save his country from himself, if that makes sense. And so the heroine's name is Harper, and she exists in the normal world. Like she lives in Washington, D.C. Um, she has kind of a tough, she has a tough life. Her mother is dying of cancer. Her father has abandoned the family and left them with a lot of debts to like unsavory characters that her brother is trying to pay back it through unsavory means. And Harper herself has cerebral palsy. So she's dealing with all of that and trying to get her brother to like stop underestimating her because of her disability. And her relationship with her brother is like really complicated. He loves her so much, but he like won't let her help. And then one day she gets abducted off the streets of D.C. and taken to the kingdom of Emberfall to, like, help save the kingdom because of this whole situation with, you know, like the beast character. And she does not know what to do, obviously, because when you're abducted to a parallel universe, how do you solve that problem? <laughs> um, and she gets very wrapped up in helping the people there and wanting to help the people there. And, you know, since it's Beauty and the Beast, you can imagine that the relationship between the prince and Harper becomes like a whole thing. 
But also she wants to go home because like her mother is literally dying and she wants to spend the last moments that she has possible with her mother. And she wants to help her brother write their family's situation. And like she had a life that she was, you know, not necessarily all the way happy with, but that she was living and that was hers. And so she wants to get back to that. But she also wants to help. And she also has feelings for this prince. So it's just all tangly and Beauty and the Beast ish. So that's A Curse So Dark and Lonely, which is the first book in the Curse Breaker series by Bridget Kemmerer. So that's like Groundhog Day plus Beauty and the Beast. Plus Beauty and the Beast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I am giving you something a little bit sideways from what you asked for, because I just feel like you will really love and enjoy The Pretty One by Kia Brown, which is an essay collection, nonfiction. And she has CP and came to sort of attention online when she started the hashtag Disabled and Cute. And she's amazing. She is an African-American young woman who has CP, like I said, and she like just breaks down so many things in this essay collection in so many fascinating ways, including a heartbreaker of a chapter on her relationship with her twin sister, which so like there's a lot of parallels here. And it's it's not the same kind of relationship that you have with your sister, but it is all about like how her disability has affected how she and her sister relate to each other and like the repairs that she's been trying to do on that relationship. Oh man, it like got me in the feels. I mean, the whole book gets me in the feels. <laughs> it's great. It's also really funny. She talks a lot about pop culture and like her favorite chairs and like, you know, why like she doesn't need people coming up to her in the grocery store telling her how to be cured. Like all of these things. She covers so much ground and she's so matter of fact in her style and so accessible. It's just like a friend like telling you her life story and she's really good at telling the story and she makes you laugh and she makes you cry and all of those things. So that's The Pretty One by Kia Brown. Uh, It does come with content warnings for a discussion of suicidal ideation, racism, and obviously ableism. All right. Our next question is from Madison Terry, who says, I need help finding a book for my mom. She's been in a reading slump for a while, and it sucks because she's my reading buddy, and I want her to keep reading with me. She's very picky. She likes to read heavy adult fantasy. It can also be YA. Books that have kingdoms, dragons, creatures, and elves. She loves elves. (laughs) She does prefer for it to have a female leading character who is powerful. Not a lot of sex or vivid description of sex scenes would be preferred. She loved the Throne of Glass series by Sarah J. Maas and really any other book by her. She did not like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, but did like The Inheritance Cycle. Okay, I picked Wicked Fox by Kat Cho for your mother, and it, this is YA. And I feel like I went with something that's a bit more modern and young and isn't just like European-focused creatures and mythology because it seems like your mom, I mean, if she didn't dig The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, then maybe that's like not the tone that she's actually into. Um, so this is about an 18-year-old girl named Gumi Young, who is a Gumiho, which is a, a non-tailed fox who has to eat men in order to survive. She's immortal, and her mother is kind of her, I don't even know what the word would be, like familiar, like keeper, like helper. She's raised her and knows who she is and what she is, that she is this mythological creature uh, embodied and that to survive she has to consume the energy of men specifically and so she's taught her how to survive it, without getting caught and so Mi Young's whole strategy is to only kill men who are terrible so like men who have committed really violent crimes rapists you know these kinds of people so that she can um, you know do the least amount of harm in the world uh, without having to sacrifice her own self. She has enlisted the help of a medium to find these dudes. And so this medium can communicate with ghosts. And so she finds ghosts of, you know, recent victims of violent deaths at the hands of terrible men. And then the medium guides Miyoung to their location. There's like lots of tech involved. It's almost kind of like Batman-ish. Hmm. Where, and this the medium, whose name I'm not remembering right now, is is kind of her Alfred <laughs> like sits in the cave and like helps her directs her and where to go and all this kind of stuff and so after, she does this every full moon and then once after feeding on one full moon she crosses paths with a normal guy named uh, Jihoon who's being attacked by goblins you know as happens to normal <laughs> folk uh, in the forest and so she decides to help him it violates some of like the rules about her laying low and not being noticed and all of that but you know there's a she has this guilt this constant guilt that like you know a serial murderer might carry 
So she wants to save this guy who's like done nothing wrong and is just in a forest. And so she helps him. And in the process of helping him, she loses her fox speed, which is the item that carries her soul. And without it, she is going to die. And so she has to decide how she's going to get that back. And it involves like the process of getting it back involves endangering this kid who she's just saved, who she actually connects with. They become friends. And she has to decide ultimately if she's going to choose her staying immortal as a nine-tailed fox or losing her immortality in order to like help save this kid. So it's a lot of themes that I think both heavy adult fantasy and YA fantasy are often dealing with, which is like, you know, who is the real monster? Do, 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 do. But also, you know, guilt and big ethical questions, selfishness, like how much of Dealing with criminals or executing criminals is actually in our power to determine like all of these things that happen in big adult fantasy novels, but with all of these creatures. And you know, this is um, all these creatures in this book are based on Korean mythology. So they are written from a perspective of like folktales. And so there's a lot, there are so many more. This was the first one that I'd read, but there are so many more books out there, both YA and otherwise that are based on Korean mythology. So I think that this is a great pick for somebody who is used to reading a lot of like kingdoms, dragons, creatures, elves, novels, because it's the same sort of stuff. Like this is the same sort of magical systems and having to learn about how this creature operates and that creature operates and all that world building, but in a maybe new setting that your mom might not be familiar with. So that's Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. I wanted to give you elves. <laughs> and before Martha Wells was writing Murderbot, she also has written a bunch of fantasy. And I'm recommending The Element of Fire, which is technically the first in a series, but I thought it stood alone pretty well. I'm like still trying to find the second book in the series. They're not the easiest to find. But the first one was easily gettable from the library. And this is this is like a very classic sort of setup. There is, you know, a magical sort of European, I think it's like a little French inspired kingdom. And there's magical threats and court intrigue. And the king, who's very weak, is like sort of being obstreperous and not listening to people and making bad choices. And his mother, the dowager queen, is like trying to like fix all of the things. And her uh, guardsman has like a complicated relationship with the court. And then this woman named Cade shows up and she has been staying with the elves and has some magic now. And what are her motives? What's she doing? Like, is she here to cause trouble? Is she here to help? Like, nobody knows. And it is just one of those fantastic adventures that has all of the, like, classic high fantasy tropes in it. But Martha Wells is just so good at character. Like, I think that's the thing that obviously makes Murderbot so successful. And she brings it to her fantasy as well. Like, these characters are just so great. And they're complex. And, you know, there are layers upon layers of motivation that you're unpacking as the story goes on. And she's so good at action scenes. Ugh, I just, like, it was so much fun. It was so satisfying. It was so a great read. And I really loved there are some really cool magic scenes and like you get to visit the elf world a little bit as well as the uh, like human world. So that's super fun. This uh, book does come with a content warning for an abusive parent. FYI. And again, that's The Element of Fire by Martha Wells. Our next question is from Rachel, who says, looking for some fantastic audiobook recommendations, as I have a few credits expiring this month. As a school <laughs> librarian, I read all over the place, both genre and age-wise, just looking for books that are particularly best when consumed in audio format. Amanda, your turn. Okay, I picked uh, The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Copley Eisenberg, which comes with a trigger warning for murder, because this is true crime. <laughs> um, so this is a combination true crime memoir. And so I picked it because it is read by the author. The audiobook is read by the author, and which I think always gives the memoir portions of any book like extra oomph because, you know, they were there. Obviously, it's about their own life. And so you get all of that feeling and emotion that they had when they were writing the book as they're reading it. So this takes place in Pocahontas County, which is a small county in West Virginia in Appalachia. And Emma, the author who was writing the book, lives there in Pocahontas County working at a camp for teenage girls for a couple of years. And she is originally from New York and comes to Pocahontas County because she has experienced, you know, college and realizing that as a white 
progressive from a middle-class family and a coastal city, she doesn't know what she's talking about most of the time. <laughs> and that she doesn't doesn't know what the right path is for someone like that, like somebody who is at heart a do-gooder, but in reality, so much of white progressive do-gooderism is just harmful to the communities that they parachute into and try to act superior to, when in reality, the existing culture was like, doing just fine, please go away. And so she don't know what to do with that. And so she goes to West Virginia, because that's like the closest thing she can think to do-gooderism that doesn't It's not like she's going to Haiti. It's still America. I don't know. So she's like trying. It's very shrug. So she goes to this county and starts working with the girls in this county. And uh, like shocking to her, (laughs) she completely falls in love with West Virginia. It's everything that she's wanted in a home. The people who live there are everything that she's wanted in a community. She doesn't like she doesn't gloss over the issues that living as a woman in a rural, like very masculine, kind of toxically masculine community can have. She doesn't gloss over the racism. But she loves the the environment, the nature, the close-knitness of a small town, all of that kind of stuff. She really, really falls in love with it. And then she hears about this, mur- this double murder that happened in 1980. And it's called the Third Rainbow Girl because it was about the Rainbow Gathering, which in 1980 was a gathering of like a bunch of hippies who would show up in a national park by the thousands, have like a love fest or whatever it is that hippies do, and then leave. And this happened in 1980 in West Virginia. And Pocahontas County was very like, ooh, I don't know how we feel about this. We don't want these people to come here and like wreck our national parks because they do have a reputation for leaving behind messes. Um, And it was also a cultural clash. Like these were a lot of people coming from like California and very like left wing, lovey dovey, hippie kind of people who were coming to a very conservative religious, traditional, fundamentalist area. And so it was like, oh, tense. And then two of the girls from the Rainbow Gathering end up murdered. And so suspicion is immediately cast on the locals because of that presumed tension. And so Emma is trying to figure out, you know, what actually happened. Maybe not not like like solve a cold case or whatever, but the pall of those murders hangs over this county for years, like decades and decades and decades after. And it turns out that someone else has confessed to the murders, somebody who has nothing to do with West Virginia, who was just traveling through at the time and picked up the girls and says that he killed them for like completely unrelated reasons. And so it it feels kind of weird at first, like you're getting the memoir of this woman who goes to West Virginia and loves it. And then you're also getting the story of these uh, of this unsolved crime. And the ratings on the book are we are are interesting because it's very obvious that a lot of people picked up this book expecting to be titillated, like how I was talking about, you know, the reasons why I'm watching The Biggest Loser, like they picked it up wanting to read a book about two pretty dead girls and like what happens to them. And then instead, they get a first person narrative about how that entire view dropping into a place that didn't ask you to come there, dropping into, you know, trauma that where your presence wasn't asked for, including these crimes is a problem. And so I think a lot of readers don't react well to having that mirror held up to themselves. So if you go to Goodreads being like, is Amanda, you know, blowing smoke up my butt? Is this book actually any good? And you see that the reviews are kind of bad. I think ignore them. And that's not not something I would normally say. I think that a lot of readers go into this book looking for X and they get Y and they don't like it. But I think it's great. And I don't like books about people coming, you know, from New York to rural areas of America and acting like they discovered it. That kind of bothers me. But she handles it really, really well. So that's The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Copley Eisenberg. We have an accidental crime theme for this question. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, But I also independently picked a mystery, Bluebird, Bluebird, by Attica Locke, which is narrated by J.D. Jackson and comes with a trigger warning for racial slurs. This is the first in Attica Locke's Highway 59 series. And, you know, I I don't process audiobooks well, so I haven't listened to it. But I was poking around on the site to find books that I love that other contributors have said, like, oh, this audiobook is so great. And this was one of the ones that came up a couple of times because, and I think it's geographically interesting. So this book takes place in East Texas, which is, you know, a whole thing. (laughs) And the main character, well, it switches POV a little bit, but generally the main character is Darren Matthews, who is a black Texas ranger, which is a whole thing inside of a whole thing. And he... Has, is like kind of in, you know, that classic washed up detective situation has you know he's his marriage is on the rocks he's drinking too much he's in trouble at work like his you know commanding officer tells him to just like go away and keep his nose clean while they sort out this other stuff 
And in the meantime, there are two murders in a small town called Lark, a black lawyer from Chicago and then a local white woman. And because of, you know, who the victims are and the racial tensions in the area, it stirs up a whole bunch of trouble. And so he gets involved. And it is very noir. It's very, like sort of dark and creepifying in lots of different ways. And it's also, you know, tackling an area of the country that I just haven't seen that many mystery Mm. or noir novels come out about. And this is also rural theme, rural murder. It's our accidental <laughs> theme for this question. Um, and the audiobook reviews were like, oh, you know, the narrator does this drawl and it just really makes you feel like you're there. And I think that, you know, especially when you're like, oh, what would be better on audio? Books where there is a geographically specific dialect, like it makes so much sense to me that you would want to hear mm. that to bring mm. you that much more into the story. So again, that's Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke. All right. Our next question is from Lily, who says, I am 13 and looking for a book about witches. The story of every girl. (laughs) I want a book with a female lead where she's badass. I would like some sort of romance. Some of my favorite tropes are enemies to friends to lovers or friends to lovers. I also really like books where the ex of the main character is still in the plot. That's very specific. Some books I've read and loved were How to Hang a Witch by Adriana Mather and These Witches Won't Burn. I would also love a book about a mixed race kid coming to terms with their sexuality. Okay, I picked one of my favorite witchy, witchy YA books, and that's Born Wicked by Jessica Spotswood, which is the first book in the Cahill Witch Chronicles. Cahill? Hmm, I'm not sure. And this was, it's like a cross between Charmed, the CW show, which I was obsessed with, Mm. and The Handmaid's Tale, (gasps) if you can like kind of wrap your head around that. So it's an alternate history of New England, and in this you know, different version of New England. The the witch trials, like the Salem witch trials, never ended. And witches are real. <laughs> like actual magical powers, not just like made up that, you know, people accusing their neighbors of stuff so they can get revenge for whatever reason, like actual magical powers. And so the government has formed to include the Brotherhood, which is exactly what it sounds like, um, religious, like fundamental Christians, uh, only men, no women, who are basically witch hunters and who exist to keep women from learning how to read, to keep women from having any kind of power or agency or doing anything except getting married and having babies. There's also the sisterhood, which is like the handmaid's tale, like the, you know, um, what do they call them? The the aunts, you know, in, in the handmaid's tale. The sisterhood are also there to keep society in check, but in a like more quote unquote feminine kind of way. So the main character's name is Kate and her and her sisters are all witches and they're trying to keep it a secret. She's the oldest. I think she's turning 17 when the book opens her. Then she has a 16 year old sister and a, a younger sister. I think it's like 11 or 12. And they know that if it's ever discovered that they are witches, they are either going to end up in an asylum or like on a prison ship or executed. So they're all trying to keep it a secret. But Kate does not have control, very, very good control over her abilities. And she's also approaching the age where she has to make a choice to either join the sisterhood or get married. And there is a love triangle here. So there is a friends to lovers situation. There's a friend of hers who she's grown up with who obviously has feelings for her, who she thinks she has feelings for. I don't know. She's also got a crush on the the new gardener who like likes to push heavy wheelbarrows around or really, really wearing really tight shirts. <laughs> His name is Finn, you know, hey And the unfortunate kind of to kind of wrinkle in this is that whenever her heart rate goes up, she loses control of her like magical powers. So she gets around Finn and then like butterflies appear out of nowhere. And she's like, oh, crap. Like, I don't you know, like I can't obviously I can't be around you because I'm putting my whole family and my life in danger. And so she kind of has to like go undercover in the sisterhood and figure out how to keep her family safe. And also maybe, I don't know, maybe some of these underground ladies are going to band together, discover their agency and topple this whole sexist government. Maybe it might be what happens. You got to read it. So that's Born Wicked by Jessica Spotswood. I decided to answer the part about a mixed race kid coming to terms with their sexuality. And bonus, it has... A lot of romantic arcs in it, including Friends to Lovers and Exes Still in the Plot. It's, I think, you will dig it. It's Odd One Out by Nick Stone. And this is like one of those like super complicated, how do feelings work contemporary YA novels? Because, and I can so identify with these three characters. They just don't know what is going on with their feelings. And, like, that is so relatable to me. Like, I just really remember that ex- those feel- those really intense feelings. And you're like, what is... I don't even know how to ID this feeling, where it's coming from, what I should do about it. Like, oh, all of the feels. So it's about three 
friends slash maybe more complicated. This is where it gets complicated. Coop, who is best friends at the beginning of the book with Jupiter Sanchez, who is Afro-Latina. Um, and Coop is black. And then they make friends with a new girl, Ray Evelyn Chin, who is Asian-American. And Coop and Jupiter have been like a twosome. They live next door. They grew up together. Like they're just the besties of bests. And they've been together like that pair for a very long time. But Coop has had feelings for Jupiter for a long time. And Jupiter IDs as lesbian at the start of the book and is just like not interested in dudes. And then adding Ray into the mix, Jupiter's like, do I like the new girl? Except that like new girl and Coop are having a thing maybe. But wait, do I like Coop? Like what's happening here? And it is really complicated and really messy and really sweet and lovely. And the friends are so good. The families are so good. There's just so much that's great about this book in terms of everybody. And everybody has to figure out their business. Like, all of them have to make discoveries about how they're interested in each other and, like, what is the right configuration for them. It's really fascinating. And just, like I said, extremely relatable. So, again, that's Odd One Out by Nick Stone. And now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from Sarah, who says, I'm looking for a book or series to get on audiobook for my husband for Father's Day. He has a 2.5 hour commute to work right now. And geez, that's a long time. I like that did not crazy. register yeah. that until I just read it out loud. That's a lot. Uh, okay, he has a 2.5 hour commute to work right now and needs something to help him get through it. He loves adventure high fantasy and prefers doorstoppers or series for obvious reasons. He's moving through the Red Rising series now, which he is loving. Tolkien is his all time favorite author. He's also enjoyed Game of Thrones, Name of the Wind, and the Expanse series. Please help me find him something else that will keep him occupied for a couple of weeks. I'm just going to keep going. I know I talked about this book recently, but it is the droid that you are looking for. It's The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. It's the first in the Dandelion Dynasty series. These books are doorstoppers. This first one is 640 pages long, and it is... High fantasy in that, like, Tolkien Golden Age tradition, except it is Asian-inspired instead of, like, Norse mythology-inspired or whatever. And it's so great. It's so great. The characters are so good. The plot just feels 
epic and, and adventurous in all the ways that you want it to. There's magic, there's schemes, there's, you know, heroic sacrifices and like epic quests across huge distances. There are no hobbits. <laughs> but there's just so much going on here. And the two main characters, I mean, it moves around a lot, but really the two main characters are Kunigaru, who is a bandit, and then Mata Zindu, who is part of a royal family who's like this warrior type. And the two of them are very opposite in lots of ways. Like, you know, Kuniguru is like wily and sneaky and, you know, wheel and dealing. And Mata Zindu has these really intense, you know, ideas about honor and, you know, the warrior code and all of these things. But they become friends, actually, and like embark on this epic quest. And there's an uprising against the current emperor. And will they win or will they lose? Oh, it's all really, really adventure, high fantasy, delightfulness. And again, total doorstoppers. It'll take him a while to get through. That's The Grace of Kings, the first in the Dandelion Dynasty by Ken Liu. Okay, I picked Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett, which comes, which comes with a trigger warning for slavery and everything that goes along with that. The first book is about 500 pages and a very long audiobook, and the second one is the same. I haven't read the second one yet because the hold list is forever long <laughs> in my life, at my library, but I'm on it. I'm on the hold list. But I, you know, the first one will we'll at least get him through a couple weeks. So this is a, a, an epic high fantasy heist novel which i'm quickly learning is like maybe my favorite kind of (laughs) fantasy to read and it takes place in a universe that is based on venice which again like this is a thing i did not realize that venice high fantasy was a trope but it absolutely is so there are like merchant houses and they run the country there's no government it's just money 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 Lots of dirty, stinking canal water in the book, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So Sancia is the main character. She is a young woman who is a thief. She is black and has escaped earlier in her life a plantation that she, well, I don't want to spoil it. She escaped a plantation through her own means that are very important to the plot and has ended up in Tavain, which is like Venice, um, working as a thief. And she's very good because she has a magical power. The magic in this universe is based on writing, it's almost like code, writing language into objects to make them sentient and then tricking them into thinking that they're other things. So like you can trick a piece of wood in a building into thinking that it's steel so it holds more steadily even though the wood is decayed. Um, or you can trick, you know, any, any anything like that. Um, and she has a plate in her head that is coded to give her the ability to give uh, uh, to make objects think that she is part of that object. So if she touches a piece of wood, she knows everything about that piece of wood, including its weak spots, which is useful for when you're trying to break into a place, you know, um, how many people are on it. Also useful if you're trying to avoid guards uh, and that kind of thing. So this is her ability. She gets hired to break into the docks and steal an artifact that she doesn't know anything about. It's just a box. Like, go into the docks, steal this box. Hey, that was Dr. Susan. Go into the docks and steal this box. Which she does. And her curiosity overwhelms her and she opens it and finds a sentient key, like a key that can talk to her. And it turns out that this key can open anything, including the doors to all of these really powerful merchant houses that keep all the poor and the, you know, just great unwashed out. So she can now get in to these places where all of this um, wealth exists. And as a thief, that's very interesting to her. But then all of her contacts end up murdered and she realizes that she's being hunted by whoever hired her, who now knows that she has this object and has not returned it. Um, So she goes on this series of heists in order to save herself. And then it turns out save the world. It's so fun and adventure packed. She makes a lot of very unlikely friends, including the guy who was in charge of guarding the docks that she accidentally burned down when she was trying to steal a thing in the first place, who like hates her. <laughs> so they they team up. It's so, so good. She's all it's she's also um extremely gay, which I'm very into in this book. And it was really interesting because Robert Jackson Bennett, the author, this is not own voices, I don't think in any way. He's a white dude. I don't know his sexuality. So shrug on that point. But I combed the reviews for this looking for, you know, hints that it was problematic, that he handled it poorly, and I couldn't find anything. I didn't notice it in anything either, but none of those lanes are my lanes. So I like to look into it a little bit when the book isn't own voices. And it seems like he did. He did like the work. I know it had a lot of baby readers. But that aside, super, super fun. Great on audio. So that's Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett. Okay. 
Next question is from Alicia, who says, I'm requesting recommendations for my partner, Brandon. He's an avid outdoorsman, enjoys hunting, fishing, hiking, all things active. He also loves reading, mostly mysteries and general fiction. He gets very into specific types of books, outdoorsman mysteries. His favorites are the Craig Johnson Longmire series and the Sean Stranahan mysteries by Keith McCafferty. He also likes the Jack Reacher series. It's less outdoorsy, but fun. I'd love some other recommendations for that type of book as it's so specific. Bonus points for the protagonist being a hunter, a fisherman, etc. Okay, Jen, what you got? So I also love the Longmire series. And my recommendation is a little bit off to the side, but it is actually extremely like the plot hinges on knowledge of the outdoors. So I think he will dig it. It's As Long As We Both Shall Live by Joanne Cheney. And this is a murder, like super dark murder story. So it has, you know, violence towards women and children. There's imprisonment and rape and child abuse and domestic violence and also like suicide and graphic violence. Like it's 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 a dark book is what I'm saying. Um, but it's so twisty turny in a way that I found super satisfying and I every time I thought I knew who Cheney was setting up, she flips the script again, which is a real feat. And the outdoors piece is that there's this couple, Matt and his wife Marie, and they are out hiking in this big local, I can't remember if it's like a national park or anyway, giant park. And they're in a section that is sort of off trail. And Matt comes running down the trail, finds the park rangers, and is like, my wife fell off the cliff. She fell into the river. I think she's dead. And the rangers are like, nobody could have survived that fall. She's definitely dead. It's a tragic accident. But then this new cop, she is new to her department, and she gets assigned to this case, and as she's poking around, she notices that Matt's first wife also died in suspicious circumstances. And then the police pull a body of, out of the river that sends them right back to Matt with lots more questions. And so, and everything is just like cat and mouse from there. And there are several points in the book where like either the detective or like they bring in some, you know, outside helpers or the rangers to like to ask them questions about like, okay, well, if you are standing here on this piece of, you know, outdoors, could you do this or this? Like, how could this happen? Like, what can, you know, how do you move through this space if you know what you're doing or if you don't know what you're doing? And like, outdoor skills are super important to the development of the plot. And it's just so twisty, turny and fascinating. And I just really dug it. I thought I thought it was really well done. And I do, I have not actually read that many mysteries that like hinge on a national park. <laughs> so that's pretty <laughs> cool. Uh, so again, that's As Long As We Both Shall Live by Joanne Cheney. Okay, I picked The Lost Man by Jane Harper, which also comes with trigger warnings for rape, domestic violence, and child abuse. This is a murder mystery that takes place in the outback of Australia in the middle of friggin' fracking nowhere. And every single character in this book is an outdoors person because the landscape is so forbidding. Um, it takes place on a ranch, well, two ranches that are separated by several miles. And strangers are almost unheard of. Um, people go for days and weeks and months without seeing anyone else. There's no real infrastructure. And so like every person has to know how to do outdoorsy things, including like hunt and there's no fishing because there's no water, but hunt and survive outside in order to like stay alive. And it's about a set of brothers. Nathan is the main character who finds out one morning when he's traveling on the land between his ranch and his brother Cameron's that his brother has gone missing. And then he discovers his that his brother is dead. And his brother Cameron is found at what they call the Stockman's Grave, which is a grave site, uh, you know, in the middle of this outback land surrounded by nothing, with nothing around it that's so old that nobody in the uh, area remembers who the dude was. So there's a lot of, like, you know, tales about who, who the guy was in the, in the grave and how he ended up there. And Cameron is found dead next to the grave with no car and no water and no supplies. He's just there. And no one can figure out how he got there. Like, how could he possibly have, like, walked that far without dying? And he did die of exposure um, because it's, you know, the middle of nowhere. And he was out there for a day with no water. And so the police, the, which consists of, like, one cop, because, <laughs> you know, outback, um, decide that he probably committed suicide. There's no signs of violence. He would have had to have gotten himself out there and th because there's no, like, tire tracks or anything. 
and then just decided that that's what he because he, because he was such an outdoorsman he would have known that you know going out to this grave with no supplies would have meant that he was dying so it's ruled a suicide but you know nathan's like nah like my brother ran a successful ranch had a wife and two young kids was doing really well always seemed really happy like this doesn't make any sense so he goes to his brother's ranch to kind of look into the situation like see how his family's doing also wrinkle Cameron's wife used to be an item with Nathan. So like there's that kind of weirdness. It's all very awkward. And so he goes and he realized that like nothing makes sense. Nothing about his brother's life is what he thought it was. Nothing about his brother's marriage is what he thought it was. And it's looking less and less like Cameron had no enemies and just went out there because he was stressed about the ranch. Like somebody might have actually killed him. So you're, you're, you know, off with Nathan as he tries to solve his brother's murder. And it's very interesting in the outdoorsiness. I, you know, like, whatever. I live in suburban Virginia. My experience with the desert is zero, <laughs> zero experience. I've been to Israel and like that was hot and dry and deserty. But uh, I have no idea what it takes to survive in that kind of landscape. And the information, like the things that these characters have to do to just go to the grocery store is fascinating. Like they have to pack their cars with all these supplies just in case because if your car breaks down, you're probably never going to see anyone. Like no one's going to come down the road so that you can flag someone down to help you. That doesn't happen. There are no people. It's just fascinating. So that's The Lost Man by Jane Harper. All right. Last question is from Sam, who says, I've been trying to read more science fiction. I recently read Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky and absolutely loved it. It made me really think and question what it means to be human and whether being human is even a good thing. I'm trying to find a book that also tackles this subject in a clever and unique way. Bonus points if there is romance and or steaminess. Bonus points if there's a strong female character that kicks butt and takes names but doesn't necessarily have to be the main protagonist. All right, so I'm going to recommend the Xenogenesis series by Octavia Butler, also known as Lilith's Brood. It's got the series has like 14 names. And the first book in the series is Dawn, and it follows a woman named Lilith who has been rescued from Earth at the moment of like nuclear war to the point where the planet is going to be uninhabitable for everyone. And like aliens have like appeared from nowhere and rescued her and some maybe some other people and put them all of these humans in stasis. And they wake up Lilith and she is like, WTF <laughs> is going on. Like she has lost her family. She's lost her. I think she has a son um, who's gone and she just is alone. She's alone with these aliens and they're gray and they have tentacles and they freak her out. Um, oh, by the way, trigger warnings for <laughs> compulsion and coercion and also like tentacle sex. It's like it's really it's a thing. And so <laughs> we're just going to gloss over yeah, that. <laughs> I, just, I was just going to say. Yeah. So she is and she is so freaked out. But also, they're not doing anything bad to her. Like, they've fixed her body. She was suffering from, I believe, cancer. And, like, she's cured. And they've made her stronger and more immune. And, like, just, like, they've done all these good things. And they're bringing her food and water. And, like, they're taking care of her. But she doesn't understand why. And then she finds out that the way these aliens exist is they're, like, genetic traders. They go around, they find other planets with other species, they make deals with these species to like trade genetic materials so that they can keep evolving and adapting to new environments, and then they like go and do it again with some new folks. And they want to do that with humans. They're like, "We think we can fix Earth, but to survive down there, like we need some of your DNA and we want to change you to be like compatible with us so that we can do that genetic trading, i.e. like have weird tentacle sex. And she's like, I, what? No, I don't know. No, thank you. <laughs> like for me. <laughs> um, and the whole series spins out from there. And it's really complicated because Lilith is forced to try to figure out like, well, if if she's stronger and more immune and, like, better taken care of, like, is that so wrong? And, like, her reaction to the aliens, like, what is that revulsion born out of when they're not doing anything to hurt her? But also, what kind of choices does she have in this situation? Like, very minimal. Because, you know, she can't get off this alien spaceship without their say-so. And so there's this really complicated and fascinating exploration of, yeah, what does it mean to be human, including, like, genetically? And why is it important? Is it important? And what what do you do when faced with that kind of a choice? So it, it gets real into it. 
So again, that is the Xenogenesis slash Lilith's Brood series by Octavia Butler. First book is Dawn. Okay, I picked the Semiosis duology by Sue Burke for you, which is very much about humans in the, in the same way to Children of Time, humans being sent out into space to propagate the species and ensure their survival and then ask a bunch of questions about whether that's really worth doing in the first place. So it is about a colony ship of humans, a generation of settlers who have left Earth because it is, you know, what it is, bad, not great, going going poorly, <laughs> to say the least, disease, disaster, war, blah, 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 blah. And so they, they end up on a planet that they name Pax. And they attempt, they realize that this planet is not empty. It has some sentient plant life that they need to figure out how to coexist with. And like initially they don't realize that the that plant life is sentient and they like eat some of it and then it's fine, but then it turns to poison and then it's not fine. And then like, oh, maybe we've been eating the sentient being that doesn't appreciate that so much. Some of the colonists start to go missing. Some of them turn up dead. And this book is really interesting because the chapters are following different generations of the colonists as they end up on packs and then have to learn to adapt to living there. And some of it is separated by like 100 years and some of it is separated by like a couple of years. And you do get different perspectives. A lot of the characters are very strong and intelligent females. There's not really any romance or steaminess. This is a really brainy kind of book and very science heavy and very much about like plant sentience. (laughs) Um, And sometimes the humans make the right choices and sometimes they don't. It also turns out that there's an alien race that's like kind of like bugs that have colonized the planet and are also there. And what gives the humans any more right to colonize this space than these bugs, even though, of course, they think, ew, they're just bugs. But like sentient life is sentient life. And what gives humans the right? That's basically what this book should have been called, I think. What what gives you the right? (laughs) And also... How dare you? (laughs) Um, Which is like also kind of what Children of Time is. Like what gives us the right and what makes us think that we're deserving of going off into space and having a second chance when we can't even functionally run the planet that we were given in the first place. Those things that are considered the big ethical questions and the big existential questions of Children of Time are revisited in semiosis. But semiosis is a lot nerdier. I think it's a lot more science heavy and has that interesting narrative structure of following the humans, as they evolve on this planet and learns to coexist and sometimes do it really badly and have really terrible outcomes, but sometimes get it right, which like sometimes we do get it right. Pat us all on the back, you know. So that's Semiosis by Sue Burke. And that's our show. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am also on Instagram at I am Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And you can find me on Twitter as Jen IRL. And we will talk to y'all next week. <laughs>